Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. I first read Dracula after I'd graduated from high school. Working on an AV project in an old storage room packed with books I'd never been assigned to read, it occurred to me that while my English teachers were all dedicated public servants doing their best with what they had, the education system had let me down a bit. There were too many books I felt like I should have read that I just hadn't. So I made a list. Books I should try and read before the summer was over, including the novels of Faulkner and Atwood, Kesey, and Stoker. For anyone who's never read Dracula, it's not that easy to get into it first. It's an epistolary novel, which means that the entire thing is written in letters passed between the characters about the events of the story. But once it gets going and Van Helsing starts on his legendary quest to destroy the Count, it's hard to put down. How we got to our modern culture of vampires, which is profoundly shaped by Stoker's fiction, is the subject of today's episode. What legends and stories informed Stoker's account, and how do they compare with how we've come to understand the vampire in its countless iterations today? Joining me for this Halloween episode, the third Halloween episode that we have produced here at A Call Confessions. This is our third Halloween together, friends. I have got Olivia Literal, as is traditional, our Grand Master of the Order. Hello. What's up? Happy Halloween. You got plans for Halloween? Nope. <laughs> Are the kids going to come by to get candy? Is that allowed in your neighborhood? They, we usually do a haunted house, but probably not this year. Not so much. I don't know. You could do a haunted field at a distance, a distanced field. <laughs> Fair enough. Dan, uh, Dan Rosendale, our Eye of the Archive, also with me today. I'm here. I have my steak. I have a, a bag of garlic. No one in my house will talk to me because I've been eating nothing but garlic in preparation for this episode, Rob. I understand, Dan, that you've been invited to a Halloween party involving soup? Yes, nothing but a driveway, camping chairs, and pumpkin soup. <laughs> Needless to say, Rob, I am jumping at the opportunity. My goodness. Uh, well, get your garlic candy, because yes, it is it is time to dive into these vampires. My name is Rob C. Thompson, and I, I'd like to welcome you all to this Halloween special for a cult confessions uh, in our evil spirit series about vampires. We the members of the secret order of alchemical actors do calmly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. Open up those plugs, Olivia. Plug, plug, plug. All right, we've got a nice crew of patrons we want to welcome to the uh, team today. Uh, we're very grateful for everyone's support, particularly, you know, when, when times are a bit tough economically out in the wide world. Uh, but the patron crew keeps on growing, and we have big plans uh, for that. So, so we want to thank Orion and Steve C., Crystal H., and Per Dallin. Yvette D. is getting a birthday OC shout-out. She's a, not, not exactly a Halloween birthday, but very close. Uh, Alyssa has joined us up. Uh, oh, oh <laughs> Alyssa has enjoyed us up to our Black Magic series and hopes we don't go downhill from there. Boy, do I have news for so. you! <laughs> <laughs> what? What's the news, Dan? <laughs> it's that it gets better and better with every episode. Rob, are oh, you kidding me? You Please, that's what I like keep to hear. Listening. 
<laughs> well, that sounds sarcastic now. <laughs> Sean K. Also, Daniel L. Uh, Yanitza G., who studies religion and philosophy in Germany. Love to have uh, scholars listening in or young and aspiring scholars. And also Shannon, uh, who uh, which says we've been helping her get through. So we appreciate that, Shannon. Get through these uh, crazy times. We had Trance return to the team, and also Kaylee, welcome back. Um, and that's that's the patron crew. So uh, what you all are supporting on the patron crew is uh, in part this program, and uh, we, we are working on some, some bonus content for Patreon first and foremost. Uh, the Bathory episodes are now all up that Olivia created, and she's working on a couple more uh, that, that she'll be announcing uh, later this well, I guess not this month. We'll keep it a secret. Uh, it, but also, Darkpool. Darkpool, if you haven't been listening, we are now eight episodes into the Darkpool, and uh, it's good spooky times for your Halloween season, and it's going to last into November. So we're going to keep Halloween going well past Halloween and straight on into Thanksgiving. So uh, oh, one more thing, one more thing I want to bring up. Uh, da- since we got Dan here, uh, Dan, what have you been up to in your spare time? In my spare time, other than being invited to driveway soup parties, I have been putting together <laughs> edited videos for the Occult Confessions YouTube channel. Um, Very nice. We are currently on the Black Magic series, our season four, um, that is going live uh, throughout this coming month and throughout the coming months. Um, currently, it's one episode a week. That may pick up, that may slow down, but that's what it is now. Uh, tune in and, <laughs> no and reminisce on how, <laughs> uh, how terrible our mic quality used to be. <laughs> we're working on it. We're working on it. Yeah, well, I mean, we're not working on it currently now, but uh, yeah, we've got some secret projects in the works to uh, correct some of that mic quality stuff in the past. Okay, thanks, Dan. Uh, appreciate it. Let's get into it, shall we? Uh, close up those plugs, Olivia. Plug, plug, plug. Bram Stoker's version of the vampire is the most influential in Western culture, but we've also got to remember he was a novelist, who drew on folklore and tradition, but also popular fiction as his sources. He did research his Dracula, but not in the way some enthusiasts have conjectured. He never traveled to Transylvania, for example, and he didn't actually research Vlad the Impaler as the model for his title character. Initially, the Count's name had been Wampir. I think you should have stuck with That's, that, honestly. That really, it just really rolls off the tongue. Wampir the Vampire, or Vampire the Vampire, if we use the uh, pronunciation from Eastern Europe. So yeah, that's a bit on the nose. Um, the name Dracula appears in An Account of the Principalities of Wallachia and Moldavia by William Wilkinson, which was actually on Stoker's reading list for the novel Dracula. It was the name of a Wallachian warlord. This warlord is possibly Vlad the Impaler, but Wilkinson never mentioned the name Vlad in his book, nor the impaling that Vlad seemed to enjoy so much, for that matter. So, Stoker was drawn to the word because of a footnote in which Wilkinson said that the word Dracula in the Wallachian language means devil. Stoker wanted the word, but not any of the cultural or historical baggage of the actual Wallachian who turns out to have been Vlad the Impaler. He just wanted the word Dracula. Transylvania was similarly selected for the way it felt in his mouth. Stoker just liked saying the word, and not for any particular association with vampire lore. 
Austria and Serbia, Silesia and Greece all had much richer vampire traditions than Transylvania at the time, and Stoker originally had planned on setting his tale in Styria, which is in Austria, uh, and that was the location for Sheridan Le Fanu's earlier vampire tale, Carmilla. Stay tuned, coming to that. So, uh, debunking a little Stoker mythology here about Vlad and Transylvania, it just turns out they sounded good. I like how it feels in my mouth too, Rob. Transylvania? Transylvania. It really just stimulates the lips. The more the syllables, the scarier it is in my experience. Like onomatopoeia. It's a scary word. It either could be a terminal illness or just something your literature professor yells at you. <laughs> and then you say, ah, er, ah. <laughs> In English literature, the vampire first emerged in 1810 in Robert Southey's epic poem, Thalaba the Destroyer. Now there's a name. In 1819, at the very, at the same famous Villa Diodati on the shores of Geneva, where Lord Byron proposed the ghost story const- contest that inspired Mary Shelley's fill in the blank, Mary Shelley's. Someone Dramatic fill in the pause, blank. Frankenstein. <laughs> yes, or Frankenstein. the modern Prometheus. Oh, nice. You got the subtitle. Oh, yeah. Very nice. Um, So it was Lord Byron himself who had proposed this contest, and Byron contributed a piece on the vampire to this ghost story contest, which was later expanded on and published by his personal physician, John Polidori. The Byron story that was sort of like transcribed through Polidori became focused on the relationship between a domineering vampire master and his slavish assistant, a relationship that mirrored Polidori's subservient place beside Byron. You got me? So the homoeroticism of the vampire, which, you know, we see in like True Blood or uh, I think most famously in Interview with a Vampire with uh, Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise, this goes all the way back to Byron. Byron is the original homoerotic vampire. He's the original sexy vampire. Yes, right there. We found Shout him. Shout out him. He's the, uh, what do they call it? The sire? Is that the, <laughs> what's, is that the original one? I guess so, the originator. Yeah, I feel like we could be, we could be working on a, a new Anne Rice novel ourselves right here. Polidori invented the image of the vampire as tall and thin, with a seductive eye who preys on young women by biting them on the neck. Apparently all things Byron liked to do. The serialized Varney the Vampire by James Malcolm Reiner began in 1845 and would expand on the motif with fangs, sleepwalking, and the staking of the vampire. So, I don't... Have you guys heard of Varney? He's that uh, dinosaur that talks to kids, right? <laughs> And then bites them, yeah, yeah, yeah. bites off their heads, <laughs> drinks them like, <laughs> like those those little. Remember those wax cokes? They were like little. Did you do this? You could you could bite the top off this wax thing and then drink the juice inside. Oh yeah. yeah well, yeah, shout yeah. out to my '80s kids. Did you do that, well, Dan? I have I have old parents. <laughs> <laughs> so they bought it for you. <laughs> yeah, it might not even be an '80s thing. That feels like a '60s thing that just kept going. Uh, Anyway, Varney is actually um, one of the first characters in a Penny Dreadful, a gothic Penny Dreadful. So he he dates to one of the first gothic Penny Dreadfuls. Penny Dreadfuls were named because they were full of these terrifying stories and they cost a penny. So your early form of soap operas, but you had to read them. But dreadful. But they were dreadful, yes, in many, 
many ways. Uh, but look at all these things. We get the staking and the sleepwalking and the fangs. All this comes from a serialized Penny Dreadful. There's no clear evidence whether Stoker read either Polidori's Vampire, which was spelled V-A-M-P-Y-R-E because it's fancier, or Reimer's Varney, the purple vampire. But <laughs> there is evidence that he read the Irish Gothic author Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla, which was published in 1872, which is interestingly right around the time when a lot of the occultism that I study gets going. This is when the Theosophical Society sort of starts to get underway in America and Emma Harding Britton and all these folks. So some of my favorite years, the 1870s. Carmilla was the first female literary vampire. She was able to transform into a beast and to enter the room in the form of a mist. Although popular tales of Stoker uh, studying Elizabeth Bathory probably aren't true, La Fanu's Carmilla bears some interesting similarities. Have you come across this, Olivia Bathory, as the original vampire? Yeah. So what's the, what's the lore around that? They added it just way after, like in the 60s. It didn't even come about till like... Way after she's dead. You mean the 1960s? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, that's quite a while after she died. My goodness. So um, in the 1960s, like, what happened? Sorry, I'm still thinking about the Penny Dreadful thing, because <laughs> did, have you seen the show? Uh, yeah, I actually have. I, I teach it, or I, I do co-teach a course uh, on ghosts and gothic fiction, and my, my co-teacher, Terry, she turned me on to Penny Dreadful, yeah. and I watched some of it. I won't say that I watched all of it, but I did watch some. Okay, well, I'm confused because I'm pretty sure in season... I'm just putting this together, that in season (laughs) two, the vampire is Dracula, right? So why would they do that instead of just going with what in Varney? They should have called him Varney. I guess that's not sexy, right? Yeah, what's easier to market, (laughs) Dracula, the known vampire, or Varney, his, like, I'm pretty sure, right? They just call him straight up, like, Dracula. Like... It, yeah, it's the better marketing. Yeah, that, I think that solves the, the question. But Varney would have been more accurate. You're right. They should have called him Varney. Could we could we sex up Varney? <laughs> I think it's, it's the Y at the end. If we called him just like Varn. But then he just sounds like an old uncle. <laughs> yeah, I'm not endorsing that season by any means. Just it's not a good season anyways. Like, I kind of ended the show kind of on a bad, weird note, but... That's fine. Varn is like that guy that you don't see ever in your childhood, and then one Thanksgiving, he's just there. Anyway, we're not even talking about that, and I just, I brought it back. I'm sorry. (laughs) So, for those of you who don't know or aren't our patrons, Elizabeth Bathory um, was supposed to have bathed in the blood of young women, and that this was how she preserved her youth. So, that's how she came to be associated, theoretically, with vampires. But I think it's fascinating that that didn't happen until the 1960s. That's, uh... It's really something. They didn't care about vampires. Like that wasn't like a folklore thing really for them back then. For the for the Hungarians? Yeah, you mean? they were like more concerned about like witches was a thing, but like not in a bad way. Like they looked at witches very differently. I mean, it's true. They're not on my list of countries who cared about vampire lore no, back in the cause day. Because that's why it totally wouldn't have been a thing with Bathory like no one brought that up ever in her like trial well her not trial but you know no one ever brought up vampire like never it's interesting but which they were she was accused of witchcraft no she wasn't oh not her, even her she had a relative that actually was but that was in Transylvania and that was like way later so they had the witch they had witch trials but they were like way after 
the like rest of the world had their like witch trials. So they were like in the 1800s, they had, I'm pretty sure, like their version of a witch trial, but it was like not really about witches being like a scary superstitious thing. It was more like a political motive to like take out women in power. So we go back to historical Bathory. It's just a mean lady. If we jump forward to the 1800s, it's witch lady. If we jump forward to 1960s, it's vampire lady. (laughs) Yeah, the vampire thing, they just added, you know, for flavor, really. They just like threw that in. And if you want to jump forward to now, subscribe to our Patreon to hear more. (laughs) (laughs) The plugs are over, Dan. My bad. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Speaking of vampire ladies, let's talk about Carmilla. So... The story of Carmilla, written by Sheridan Le Fanu, is set in an aristocratic chateau in Styria, Austria, a country, again, where there is a lot of vampire lore. And the narrator, whose name is Laura, but we don't find that out until the story is more than halfway done, because in the 19th century, people love to withhold the names of their title characters, or their narrating characters. Laura is living with her father her mother having died when she was an infant. As a child, she is visited by a mysterious female figure who gets into bed with her and flees when the child feels a stabbing pain in her chest and wakes up screaming. Fast forward to Laura's young adulthood, and she and her father are expecting guests. General Spielsdorf and his niece, Bertha, except that Bertha dies suddenly and mysteriously. That day, they witness a horrible carriage accident. And by that, I mean Laura and her father witness a horrible carriage accident. So event one, the general writes a letter saying, I can't come because my niece who was supposed to come with me. She totally just bit it. Event two, horrible carriage accident right in front of the two of them. The passengers are a regal middle-aged woman in black velvet and her teenage daughter. The woman is on an urgent errand and asks if she can leave her daughter, apparently injured by the crash with Laura and her father. The father agrees, and they take in Carmilla, a beautiful teenage girl, tall and languorous, with long, dark hair and large, piercing eyes. Carmilla is instantly smitten with our narrator, looking on her with a melancholy fierceness and covering her cheek in kisses that trail down to her neck. Hey, that's where vampires bite people, Rob. In their languor? No, on the neck. (laughs) (laughs) So, those of you who are not familiar with 19th century speak, languorous uh, means what? What you, you guys know this? <laughs> this game is going. I thought horribly. Dan was gonna go. <laughs> Same problem with Frankenstein. Tired. It's so sleepy, tense. Whatever. It's so tense. Yes, tired and sleepy. Uh, okay. Dearest. Your little heart is wounded. Think me not cruel because I obey the irresistible law of my strength and weakness. If your dear heart is wounded, my wild heart bleeds with yours. In the rapture of my enormous humiliation, I live in your warm life, and you shall die, die, sweetly die into mine. I cannot help it as I draw near to you. You in your turn will draw near to others and learn the rapture of that cruelty which yet is love. So, for a while, seek to know no more of me and mine 
but trust me with all your loving spirit. Strange things start to happen in the village. Young girls are dying mysteriously, purportedly attacked in the night. At the chateau, a picture cleaner uncovers the painting of one of the narrator's distant relatives, a Countess Miracella Karnstein from 1698, who looks an awful lot like the narrator's new friend, Carmilla. Laura begins to have strange dreams and sees a black cat pacing at the foot of her bed. In one of her dreams, Carmilla appears standing over her, her nightdress covered in blood. General Spielsdorf finally arrives. Remember that guy? His niece died mysteriously. He didn't show up. Well, now he's here. And uh, he's after he was deterred by his niece's death, as you would be. And he relates the story of how his dear Bertha was murdered. Well, he got over it, I guess. <laughs> he got it. No, he didn't. I'll tell you why. So this is what happened to Bertha. First, the general meets a regal-looking woman. Does that sound familiar? Who refused to divulge her identity at a masquerade. She was accompanied by her teenage daughter, who took a fancy to Bertha. And the woman was suddenly called away on urgent business, leaving the teenage daughter with the general. The older lady begged the general to take the girl in temporarily while she was away, and the general consented, but, as we find out, he lived to regret it. As soon as he took the girl in, her name was Miarka, or Milarka, Milarka, Miracella, and Carmilla. Bertha's health began to degrade as soon as he takes in Milarka. The particularly superstitious doctor, who happened to work for the general, warned him that Bertha's trouble might be the work of a vampire. The general was never one to balk at such a tale, and so he sprung into action. I concealed myself in the dark dressing room that opened upon the poor patient's room, in which a candle was burning, and watched there till she was fast asleep. I stood at the door. Peeping through the small crevice, my sword laid on the table beside me as my directions prescribed, until a little after one, I saw a large, black object, very ill-defined, crawl, as it seemed to me, over to the foot of the bed, and swiftly spread itself up to the poor girl's throat, where it swelled, in a moment, into a great, palpitating mass. For a few moments I had stood petrified. I now sprang forward, with my sword in my hand. The black creature suddenly contracted towards the foot of the bed, glided over it, and, standing on the floor about a yard below the foot of the bed, with a glare of skulking ferocity and horror fixed on me, I saw Malarka, speculating I know not what. I struck at her instantly with my sword, but I saw her standing near the door unscathed. Horrified, I pursued and struck again, but she was gone and my sword flew to shivers against the door. I can't describe to you all what passed on that horrible night. The whole house was up and stirring. The specter Malarka was gone, but her victim was sinking fast. And before the morning dawned, she died. Man, I'd be so mad. (laughs) If your sword broke or if your niece was murdered by a vampire? I mean, both of those things are not optimal. (laughs) (laughs) So you'd be standing there with your broken sword and your murdered knee saying, this is suboptimal. 
The general arrives at the narrator's chateau in hopes of visiting the ruins of the neighboring Karnstein Castle, where the grave of Countess Miracala of Karnstein can be found. The pieces finally click together for Laura, and she realizes that Carmilla is the same as the general's tormentor, is the same as the 17th century Countess Miracala, who Laura discovered looked an awful lot like her new friend Carmilla, down to the birthmark on her neck in a portrait at her house. Amazing. The grave of the Countess Mercala was opened, and the general and my father recognized each his perfidious and beautiful guest in the face now disclosed to view. The features, though 150 years had passed since her funeral, were tinted with the warmth of life. Her eyes were open. No cadaverous smell exhaled from the coffin. The two men, one officially present, the other on the part of the promoter of the inquiry, attested to the marvelous fact that there was a faint but appreciable respiration and a corresponding action of the heart. The limbs were perfectly flexible, the flesh elastic, and the leading coffin floated with blood in which to a depth of seven inches the body lay immersed. That's that for her. All right, so you can see some clear connections between our modern vampire and Carmilla, uh, who really merged a lot of vampire lore in this one female vampire figure who then directly inspired Bram Stoker, whose Dracula is with us so much that Penny Dreadful would rather name their vampire Dracula than Varney. Criminal. (laughs) Criminal, yes. A historical error. There is one thing about Carmilla that I did not uh, correlate with the modern vampire. You know what that is? What? Uh, she. There's no mention of her having to ask to come into a house. That's true. That is not a Carmilla thing. That is like the silliest vampire thing in my opinion. <laughs> the threshold issue? Yeah. Yeah, it is an interesting one. It's in Buffy... It's in. Is it in Interview with a Vampire? It's in. Is it in uh, True Blood? It's in a lot of different shows it's like, and, you know and media what this, about vampires. This terrifying monster of the night needs manners. That's what. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like in in Buffy though they do a pretty good job of they make a lot of like dramatic hay out of that because when the vampire does get or like when she does invite them in accidentally or or whatever you're, you know the the audience is always like oh no and and you know that come the chickens come home to roost later in the episode or something so it builds a bit of dramatic tension but i i do agree from like an occult perspective it's a little odd you know, I might want to take that back, though, because when you think about it, like if we're thinking about like, you know, Appalachian or even like, you know, the old demon lore where you would hang crosses over your door or paint your door with blood. The doorway is kind of a magical thing that you can curse or bless to keep evil out. Why is that even a thing like attributed to vampires sometimes like asking? Because to me, that's so weird Because, like, spirits, like, demons don't ask to, like, come in. Like, they just come in. Like, you ward them off. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, those sex demons, they just sneak right on in. But you, yeah, you would have to ward them off to keep them from entering. But the vampire feels like he can't enter. It's not like you've hung garlic on your door. He just can't get in. But, like, what? (laughs) Do you know where that came from? Probably not. I don't. No. I I mean, we'll go through the lore now. Maybe I just don't remember. We'll see if anything comes up in the lore that sounds like it answers this. But it's an interesting feature of the vampire legend. Okay, so let's get into the actual folklore. So this is, so we're sort of like tracing back. We go from Dracula to Carmilla and now going a little bit deeper. Now we're in the the folklore that fed these stories. Fictional vampires have their roots in the vampires of legend and folklore. 
These were called revenants, rising from the grave, and were common in medieval Europe, notably in the work of William of Newburgh and Caesarius of Heisterbach. And Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> also Leonardo DiCaprio, yes. <laughs> yes, famous medieval monk Leonardo of DiCaprio. I guess it would just be DiCaprio, right? Because that's of... In the Renaissance, Martin Del Rio, Henry Moore, uh, in his Antidote to Atheism, and James I, who we talked about in our last episode, all wrote about reanimated corpses. And in 1732, a group of Serbian doctors investigated a graveyard thought to be plagued by revenants and discovered at least one corpse unusually well-preserved. They decapitated and burned the bodies and had the ashes thrown in the river. Vampire lore depends on its Christian context. We need look no further than the classic image of the vampire shrinking back from a cross, perhaps hung over the door. And Christianity has always held a central place for the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, a concept that opened the door for vampire legends. Paul said that true Christians must believe that all of the dead will eventually be brought back to life, much in the same way that Jesus was. In medieval and Renaissance Europe, fierce debates circulated over how fetuses would resurrect, or people who were dismembered or eaten by cannibals. These are complex theological questions, because the dead resurrecting was a literal event. So if you got eaten, I don't want to yeah. see that. That's not going to yeah, be. Yeah, that's a, just. That's not good. Whatever's coming you, back. You'll come. You'll come back looking like a Big Mac patty. <laughs> Ugh. Gross. But the end times resurrection, much like that of Jesus and of Lazarus, are miracles performed by God, whereas the vampire is, almost by definition, evil. So how's the vampire coming back? How is the revenant coming back, if it's God's work to revive the dead ever afterwards? The devil was known to be able to manipulate the bodies of the dead or assemble apparitions from particles in the air, something we talked about in our sex demon episode, just the last one. Any vacated body could be possessed, but the devil seemed to favor the bodies of deceased criminals. There were stories of corpses being driven back into their tombs, visiting former lovers to gouge out their eyes, and spreading disease through their putrid decay. These were terrifying times in Europe. (laughs) People believe this stuff. Yikes. Can you imagine your lover dies and the first thing you're worried about is that their corpse is going to return and come for your eyes? Yeah, and it's like, and then what if you're both resurrected? You're just like, honey, where's my eyes? And it's like, that's just, that's a conversation I'm not ready for. (laughs) It was the demon. The demon made me do it. (laughs) Revenants are a regular feature of Icelandic lore as well, grouped into categories of sagas and appear in 36 instances. The hogbui, or grave dwellers, literally inhabit their graves. They don't, like, like, they're hanging out down there. They're not laying down there, they're like chilling and having uh, hot cocoa, whatever you have in Iceland. They don't have much interest in venturing out to hurt or help the living. Probably some kind of pickled fish. Do the Icelanders eat pickled fish? But it, I'm, I'm sure they don't drink it. <laughs> well, you're doing something down in that grave is the point I'm trying to make. If anyone has been to Iceland or if anyone is from Iceland, I don't think we actually have a lot of listeners in Iceland. So uh, there, here's a test. Any of our Icelandic listeners, let us know what you, what you if you were a revenant chilling in your grave, what you would be eating in Iceland. So by the way, if you're down there chilling, if you're a hogbui, 
you're a grave dweller, you possess supernatural strength, and uh, there are in these various hero tales, these hogbui come up when someone comes to rob the grave of particular goods, um, and they have to overcome or outsmart them. So, you know, like it's one of those epics where you need, absolutely need the magical pendant of, you know, the mountain king, and you got to go to the grave because, you know, this one guy was buried with him, and then it turns out that guy is totally a, a vampire. Oh, no. He was number one. You got to beat him. But he's super strong and super smart, so be careful. They're like superhumans. I don't think Rob got that, Dan. That's all right. Some, someone out there I think will. everyone else <laughs> not Rob's age probably will, but... <laughs> Rob, to catch you up, that was a SpongeBob SquarePants reference. But like yeah, I know a what you're good about. classic one, you know? <laughs> you're... <laughs> so... Yet again, a call confession's coming through with a message that is both for people who get the reference yes. and for people who don't, because yeah. we're all in the room. So if you go if you go <laughs> digging up graves, do not dig up the grave of Schmitty Warberman Jensen. Oh yes, I know that off the you top really of my head. You really did. Deeper and deeper. <laughs> the Draugr, by contrast, torments the living, sometimes driving them insane. Often a criminal or miscreant in life, the Draugr continues its antisocial ways in death. I swear to God. Menacing cattle. Oh my God, I'm sorry. I, I thought you said jogger twice in a row, and I was like, what? <laughs> I was jog- trying to figure out what you were saying. Joggers are a pain in the butt. Okay, sorry. Just edit that out. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's good. Because okay. <laughs> somebody could be jogging right now listening to this, and maybe they're thinking to themselves, am I actually a vampire? Don't jump. It's okay. <laughs> Don't jump. You oh can't die. Gosh. You're a revenant. You've been reanimated by a demon who, for some reason, just really wants to run a marathon. You finish that mile or whatever you're doing. So, anyway. the Draugr, D-R-Augr, menaces cattle, and tears up rooftops, particularly at Christmas. So you might think that's reindeer up there. Or Santa just getting tired of the the chimney. (laughs) No, it's an angry vampire ripping up your roof tiles. More terrifying yet, the Draugr is capable of murder, and its victims become fellow Draugrs, infected by their contact with the undead monster. The creature emits a cry before it kills, not unlike the Banshee, whose cry warns of impending death. The Draugr does not decay. It can drop through the earth like a phantom, and it is only defeated by burning the body and scattering the ashes. So naturally, I bring up the Draugr because there's a lot of vampire lore tied up in this particular figure, right? The undeadness, the passing of the curse, and uh, the, the the eternal youth, right? Oh, wait. There's there's this in Skyrim, right? Dan, did you play Skyrim? I did. There okay, are. now I'm, I'm here. Hello, I'm present. This is a wealth of pop culture references today. Well, they're, they're, like deep they're always in the crypts, and I hated, I hated going into the crypts in Skyrim. I just hated it. That's never mind. You know what's fun though? The Draugr, ul- ulterior to the the vampire, does not ask to come in. It just rips your roof off and murders you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so why Dan has pick... a bit more respect for the Draugrs that they're saying. Why don't we pick that up, huh? Why can't we just have them, you know, dig that wolf your house and then come in and. Take you. That's so much more menacing. <laughs> On Christmas, when you think it's Santa coming down the chimney, it's even worse. Exactly. It could be a rogue draugr. Let me turn my attention now to the vampire epidemic. Oh. 
So getting back to Dracula a bit, Stoker's vampire may have been fed, or rather his notion of the vampire, by some legends uh, like the ones we've been talking about. But if we're looking for a direct historical source, it was probably most directly informed by Europe's vampire epidemic. So this was a historical event that lasted from 1730 until 1735. Europe was plagued by an actual epidemic of vampires dead bodies sucking out the blood of their victims. Writing in 1746, Catholic theologian Dom Austin Calmet recorded tales of these revenants who returned from the dead after several months in the grave to torment villages by leeching blood from animals and humans until it killed them. These attacks were centered in the countries of Hungary, Moravia, Silesia, and Poland. So, Hungary, I guess, Olivia, but after the Bathory years, starts to get a bit of vampire action. They just don't catch a break. <laughs> Let's listen to a couple of the more famous tales from the epidemic. In the village of Kislyohevo, in what is now Serbia, Peter Plogovic, dead ten weeks, visited his wife's house to ask for his shoes. She didn't answer. Over the next eight days, neighbors complained of his visiting their homes and squeezing the life out of them in their beds. After his visits, they died within 24 hours. A total of nine people died this way. They dug up Peter's body, observed fresh skin, nails, and hair growing where the old ones had fallen away, and blood on the corpse's lips. The villagers fashioned a stake from the wood of a white thorn and drove it through the dead man's heart, and fresh blood spurted from the ears and mouth. They then burned the body to ashes. This story came from a military officer in the service of Habsburg, then stationed in Serbia. In the village of Medveda, a local militiaman named Arnold Payol returned from the Turkish region of Serbia, claiming that he'd been attacked by a vampire. But he said he survived by eating dirt from the vampire's grave and smearing himself with its blood. It seemed to have worked. That is, until a month later, when Arnold suddenly died. Shortly after the soldier's death, stories of his corpse visiting to haunt the village began to circulate and four villagers turned up dead. They disinteared his body and discovered fresh skin, nails, and hair growing in place of the old and fresh blood oozing from his eyes, nose, and ears. When they pierced his heart with a stake, he cried out and they burned his body to ashes. Are you going to bring the science in here and... Yeah, we are going to do some Is this science. like, because all I keep thinking is people with rabies. Is it like a, yep, yep. Okay. <laughs> Give us a sec. Okay, We're getting sorry. to the science. You know, it's not really the first uh, eating dirt and smothering myself with blood. Not exactly my first survival instinct, I got to be honest with you. Apparently it gives you another month, though. So noted. there's that. Definitely <laughs> noted. <laughs> All right, uh, but that wasn't the end of it, by the way, of the vampire epidemic, if you think that's enough. Villagers continued to die, 13 over the space of six weeks. A Dr. Glazer, specialist in contagious disease, visited and found no evidence of an epidemic. The villagers showed him the corpses of new vampires looking fatter, younger, and healthier than they had in life. And over the next three months, 17 more died. The villagers claimed by eating cattle, Arnold Paol had infected when he vampirized them. Uh, this was spreading the, the sort of death around the village. So you shouldn't eat. If a, a vampire eats a cow, you shouldn't then eat the cow. It's like mad cow disease. 
Cool. Good thing I'm I'm pescatarian. <laughs> yes. Right. I, I'm also feeling very comfortable right now. Yeah. Pescatarians unite. As <laughs> we're long good. as those vampires don't get to like a nice fresh salmon, <laughs> we're <laughs> yeah. good. And release it back into the stream. The military arrived and dug up 13 corpses, some decomposed, some not, with evidence of vampirism in and around many of the graves. Let's hear just a bit from the report of the regimental surgeon, Baron Furstenbusch. Stanovica, female, 22, daughter-in-law of the Havuk Hovija, was still florid and healthy-looking, with fresh blood coming out of her nose. A great quantity of fresh blood was found in the chest and stomach. The body was not in the least decomposed. A bruise was noted under her ear, one finger long. It was said that, while still alive, she had awoken one night with screams and in great anguish, saying that Hovija's dead son, Milo, had returned from the grave and tried to strangle her. Within days, she was dead. Now, what do you mean when you say they, they found fresh blood? Like, when you cut someone open, don't you normally find fresh blood there? The presumption was that if you had died, and this is not entirely off the mark, that the blood would coagulate and congeal and that you wouldn't be able to have a fresh cut. Ah. You know what I mean? Especially if you've been in the grave for a while, in theory. Okay, yeah, that makes more sense. Let's get into some vampire biology. Olivia wants some science. Bring me, make it make sense. Vampire science. Well, I'm going to do my best. There's, of course, going to be some holes here, as is traditional on a call <laughs> confessions. We always leave some holes for the supernatural. So modern commentators have sought to explain away the vampire epidemic and earlier legends as the product of various diseases. We'll start with one called porphyria. Have you guys heard of this one? Ew, if you're going to... Co- pores. Pores in there? Porphyria? What you... uh, no, I think you're okay. good. It's not going to be All that, right. that gross. Okay. <laughs> could be grosser. It's, you're not like bleeding out of your pores okay, or anything. Okay, cool. All right. Okay. It causes a discoloration of your teeth, changes in behavior, nocturnal wandering, and even excessive hair growth. It's That's a, just what happens when you drink coffee, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Extra pubic hair and you wander through the night. Um, the disease is a blood disorder, and it's an inherited blood disorder, and it's often experienced in periodic attacks involving seizures, paralysis, and photophobia, or blistering in sunlight. So you would just suddenly grow a lot of hair, and then then it would pass, and I guess your hair would fall out. Jo- Apologies to anyone with porphyria. We don't mean to be making light. Yeah, I know. Uh, yes. <laughs> I'm sorry about your rapid hair growth. George III, King of England during the American Revolution, was known to experience periodic bouts of madness and may have suffered from porphyria. I actually don't know if porphyria is still a thing. Like, I don't I don't know anyone who has porphyria. Mary, Queen of Scots, and Vlad III, Voivode of Wallachia, also known as Vlad the Impaler, were also supposed to have been people who suffered from porphyria. Fun fact. Dang. I mean, in the case of all these folks, they're royalty, right? So some of the inbreeding, I think, may have caused the passage of the blood disease. Yeah, that'll do it. And in, in, uh, historically, inbreeding will lead to blood disease. <laughs> lead to nocturnal wandering. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't really explain that one out. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> But uh, Porphyria runs counter to many vampire legends. 
The vampire in folklore is generally described as appearing healthy and often even moving about in daylight. So that whole nighttime thing, that, that, that's post-folklore. That came out of the literature. A debilitating illness does not seem to characterize the undecayed Draugr or super-strong Hogbui or even beautiful Carmilla. They don't, none of them seem ill, right? They're all pretty strong. They're a little languorous. Yeah, and also able to rip an entire roof off, Rob. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So yeah, it's more like they're on PCP than that they have porphyria. Yeah, it's not like the Draugr's like sniffling and blowing their nose while ripping a roof off your house. (laughs) Furthermore, an extreme form that might result in deformed fang-like teeth, anemia, and photosensitivity is extremely rare with only 200 known cases ever documented. So porphyria is also something that people don't tend to have in the way we're talking about a tan where you suddenly grow a lot of hair and then it suddenly falls out. (laughs) There's only been 200 documented cases, so it's a very rare disease. Okay. Pelagara, a niacin deficiency brought on by an over-reliance on corn in your diet, also causes hypersensitivity to light, skin inflammation, and brain deterioration. But, you know, traditionally this would have been more of an American problem than a European problem because they have all that wheat. Rabies, as Olivia mentioned, causes sensitivity to light and strong smells like garlic. So you don't like garlic if you're rabid, apparently. I guess that's a good thing if you're being attacked by, like, a rabid skunk. You grab the garlic. You just have garlic on you. If it's handy. You mean you you don't keep cloves of garlic in your wallet? If you're being attacked by a rabid animal on your way out of the grocery store, you can reach in. That's the only circumstance under which it would help you, I suppose. Now, you said strong smells. Would, like, cinnamon work also? I guess it probably, yeah, anything that has a strong smell. Like, pocket cinnamon and just... Yeah, that might be more pleasant. I'm not gonna do the yeah. cinnamon challenge. Way. What do you mean? Just smelling cinnamon? I don't think. Yeah, okay, but if if push comes to shove, if it, if it's me or the rabbit animal, I'm throwing some cinnamon. Like Palagara and Porphyria, the body does not appear pristine and youthful, but rather diseased and unhealthy. So again, not great for vampirism. Rabbit, rabbit. Apparently, rabbit people are not looking too good. The more likely explanation, at least for the appearance of the exhumed vampires, is decomposition itself. This will be fun. The new skin is the dermis, as the epidermis detaches and slips off. So when their skin seems fresh, it's actually their second layer of skin, because the top layer has detached and slipped away. Blood does coagulate at death, as I mentioned, but it can liquefy again during decomposition. Fun fact. (laughs) All the funeral directors who listen are screaming, have been screaming at the podcast. (laughs) That's just how it is. I was trying to tell you, Rob, that blood <laughs> liquefies that decay. <laughs> we'll be getting all You're kinds fooled. of emails. We're very popular in funeral homes. The new nails were likely just the nail beds as the nails fell off. And the strange cry, this is, I love this. The strange cry was caused by stabbing, stabbing a body bloated with gases. So... During natural decomposition, your body will fill, will bloat with gases. So if you jam a stake in it, you'll hear the, the gases emitting <laughs> through like, the body. It'll like sound like a cry. Air out of a balloon. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. So this makes sense for the corpse's exhumations, but like most scientific attempts to explain or explain away the supernatural, it does miss some important components of the story. Namely, the nocturnal horrors experienced by peasant villagers and their imminent deaths. Also, people rising from their graves. 
all yeah, these folklore. Are, uh, <laughs> I don't I don't know of any people with rabies rising <laughs> rise from, from the from dead. Their grave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean the folklore is pretty like if if we take these stories at face value and there are considerable stories there are people rising from their graves so no amount of epidemiology here is going to account for how a dead person just gets up and walks back to the village and starts infecting people i would be so excited if i rose from the dead man just like let's go round two baby you thought you could keep me down Bram Stoker apparently heard stories from his mother of people buried alive during the cholera epidemic. Determining the point of death by feeling for breath or a pulse was far less exact than our modern machines permit, but even live burials can't explain the sightings of people long presumed dead. So maybe if they've been dead a day or two, not seven days or three months or seven years. Some German vampires that surfaced during the epidemic were as many as 10 or 30 years in the grave. While the questions raised by these mysteries don't necessitate the existence of vampires, the issues they introduce also aren't so easily dismissed. Certainly, there's more to the vampire than screaming corpses, but what exactly that could be is beyond any simple explanation, scientific, paranormal, or otherwise. Happy Halloween, spooky times. Same to you, Rob. I hope you have a terrifying Halloween. Oh, no. I have a two-year-old. <laughs> nothing terrifying about Halloween. Your wife is just always Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> she wants to be a ghost. I'm very, very proud of her because most of my research has been on, uh, you know, spiritualism and ghosts. So I'm you think that's why? thrilled that she wants to be a ghost. No, I don't think she has any awareness of what I do for She's a like, living. You know what? I think, I think I'll be a ghost just to please my dad's scholarly side. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's pretty synchronous, though, yeah, that she decided she wanted to be a ghost. This is the first time she's, like, cognizant enough to be able to make a choice and she really wants to be a ghost for halloween that's nice yeah i'm I'm on board with it my wife not so much because ghosts aren't very fancy you know like you can't it's not like you can't make a twee instagram costume out of a sheet you could do the uh the charlie brown one that's where it's just holes all over yeah just just all holes (laughs) the artist ghost Welcome back to the Alchemical Actors Intermission Theater featuring the continuing saga of Shannon versus the evil evilness. We rejoin our heroine, Shannon, at a medieval Scottish castle where she's gone to spend a weekend with the lord and lady of the estate who have probably the worst Scottish accent you have ever heard or will ever hear in your life. Apologies to our listeners from Scotland. Lord and Lady Scottish people, I regret to inform you that your precious castle on this most spacious and green Scottish estate is haunted. Also, these kippers are cold. Ah, Vashannon, the American peasant. This castle has never been haunted before. Perhaps it is you who are haunted. Perhaps it is you who is haunted. The 
That doesn't make sense. What wretched fortune for us, cursed as we are in our separateness, to meet in this way. We're not cursed. Everything's really pretty okay here. You deny it, my lord, but you cannot pretend that your kippers have been served at an acceptable temperature, for they have not. Let's gong it on into the Order of Confessors, shall we? Uh, we want to announce the creation of Powell's Oddities and Curiosities, which was opened up by our friend Gabe the Butcher. Um, and I'm pretty sure you can just visit Powell's Oddities and Curiosities, uh, P-O-W-E-L-L-S, uh, on Instagram and, and check out what Gabe is up to. I, I think it is a bold and creative move to open a new business at, at this time in our, our world history. Uh, so give Gabe some love uh, for, for putting his his neck out there. And he's got all sorts of cool stuff. Uh, it's got occulty and strange vibes. So uh, we wanted to give give Gabe a shout out there for for doing, doing that occulty entrepreneurship out there in the wide world. I also want to thank uh, Roos Inc., Roos.Inc., who is interested in how various strains of occultism began and likes to imagine being back in the time periods that we talk about on the podcast. Roos is a UK listener. And I'm bringing up Bruce, I guess this is a means of apology. Here's something I didn't understand, friends. And I, I, I like to think of myself as a fairly informed podcaster. I'm not just a scholar, but uh, in addition to being a scholar, I, I have researched deeply how to run a podcast and edit a podcast and be a podcaster generally. But one thing I didn't grasp is that our iTunes reviews are entirely from the U.S. because we are in the U.S. So when we go to our iTunes, we only see U.S. reviews. Fun fact. Uh, so I actually don't know how we look in other countries. I oh, think no. there are tricks to look, but I don't feel like I want to do that. What I can do, I think, is over time I can go and, and start finding the reviews that have been written about us in other countries. This will inevitably make me both delighted and sad as <laughs> reading listener reviews Always yes, we does. Get ripped up or, or praised from foreign places. Inevitably, both. Yeah, it will be happening on all continents. Uh, I can tell that there are a number of, of international reviews that we have missed. So, Roos, you're the first to make it onto the actual order of confessors. Uh, and the last thing I want to mention uh, that I will bring up on our next episode, uh, something to look for, the Lux Occult Podcast. That's L-U-X, Lux Occult Podcast. Uh, I just did an interview with Luxa Strata. Isn't that cool? Her name is Luxa Strata. That's sick. Uh, so Luxestrata is the host of the Luxacult Podcast, and uh, we had a, a really excellent conversation. Uh, I've, I've done... Olivia and I have both done our share of interviews, and some of them are good, and some of them are not so good. Uh, but this was a really, really good conversation. So if you're interested in, I guess, some of my personal takes on the occult, you think you get them on this, but uh, this is more of a, I don't know, streamlined, straight to the, straight to the artery of Rob, <laughs> without Yum. all this research <laughs> getting in the way. <laughs> get to just talk about me for an hour. Uh, so if, if that at all appeals to you, uh, or, or just generally, uh, Luxa focuses on chaos magic and themes around chaos magic and uh, different kind of stuff like that. So if that appeals, and I know we have a lot of listeners who are interested in that sort of stuff. So uh, go ahead and check out her podcast. She's got a great vibe over there. All right. And we'll mention it again, like I said, next time I'll, I'll, when the episode's up, I'll give you the details. Okay, then, Olivia, let's bring this on home. 
hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors till such a time as we get together and do it again. Joining us with the voices today, we had Aubrey Radford and also Savannah Verrett. Um, we had Sean Priest and Brandon Walls, Luke Kinneman, and Andrew Mims. So the voice boys, I call them, those four. They're our voice boys. Joining me here at the uh, mic, around the mic, at the mics, the sundry mics throughout the world, uh, we have Dan Rosendale, I of the Archive. That is me, sundry on the mic. Find him on YouTube uh, at Occult Confessions YouTube's channel. Find find us, Rob. It's all of us. <laughs> yeah, but it's your <laughs> visuals. Find Dan visually out there in the wide world. And uh, Olivia Literal, our Grandmaster of the Order. Happy spooky season, guys. Even if it's different this year. <laughs> you sound so dejected. I am, but, you know, we gotta be Halloween dejected indoors. together. Can't you do some kind of, you know, Wiccan stuff out there on the lawn? You got a lawn. I, yeah, I don't have a field, but I do have a lawn. <laughs> Halloween yes. is where the lawn is. Could, could you do some do some, some ritualizing on Halloween? I was thinking Saturday about night? doing this, this other thing I was reading about, but I don't know how Wiccan it is. All right, well, so hit me with it. We got the chaos magicians oh, out there. I don't we got know. the improvisers. I gotta, I've been just reading about it. I don't want to sound You're like... You're willing to commit. Well, I just don't want to be like... I don't know exactly... Like, I can't, like, ascribe it to a certain culture yet, so I don't want to, like, come off as... Well, give us... Don't tease us too much. Give us one element that will be incorporated into this ritual. Any one thing. Uh, food? <laughs> uh, <laughs> nice. It's like a... It's kind of... I guess it's... I don't know. I guess it kind of... I don't know. It's like a a dinner for the dead kind of thing. So like a harvest ritual slash day of the dead kind of thing. I guess it's kind of more day of the dead, but it's more like you literally like make a special like meal and like you set a place for people that have like died and then you like eat your food and then you like get rid of their food however you want. I love that. I think that might have some Chinese connections, actually. Yeah, I don't know. I was just reading about it, and it kind of seemed not, like, descript... Like, it's not, like, so ascribed to, like, one thing that I feel... Yeah. I don't know. So, yeah. Well, yeah, because ancestor worship is many cultures. Africa, China. Yeah. It's all over and the place. And it's, you know, That's the great. day that the veil is thinnest anyways, pretty much across the board, no matter what culture. Yeah. So, yep. But we'll be seeing ghosts over here. Cool. Okay, uh, that's it. So next time, we are going to visit the uh, wild world of the jinn, the genies. Arabian you know, like Nights. I had to change it, because I don't want to get copyright. No, I think that was good. So that was <laughs> it was really version. like off-tune and off-beat. <laughs> I don't know. That's, it's from our new original musical, Arabian Nights. <laughs> you said we're visiting the jinn. Are we simultaneously visiting the juice as well? Um, the gin juice? What? Mm. <laughs> Oh my god. The gin and juice. Stop. Oh, what in the f Did you work at a bar? <laughs> so many bartenders in the room gross. right now. I don't I agree. I am not a gin fan. Yeah. When I see young people drinking gin, I'm like, you're lying. Like you're lying to everyone you, in the bar. Do you know what makes gin even grosser? Is it tonic? Oh my god. <laughs> don't get me started. I used to literally go off like uh, never mind. We we can't do this right now. <laughs>
It's got that um, the malaria stuff in it. What is that called? The the what? old malaria drug is in tonic. Tonic water is is made with this malaria drug that they used to use it to like ward off malaria, and it makes your your like your skin crawl a little bit. What's it called? I literally have no idea. <laughs> Find out next time. <laughs> <laughs> I can totally just Google it. Uh, quinine. Quinine. That's oh, what yeah, it's we all knew that. All Every single well, one of us. You're telling me, Rob, that you've never sat back with a gene and juice with your mind on your money and your money on your mind? I, I'm going to. Maybe that's my Halloween plans now. After ghost time with, with Corinne, we'll, we'll, I'll do that. Yeah, you t- you tell me how that goes. It's a good time. <laughs> I'll just be chilling with the dead. <laughs> well, we'll catch you next time here on A Call Confessions. Bye, guys. Bye.